This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Yes, this is the Talk of Fame Network, though today we're a little bit undermanned. There's no Ron. Said he had a pressing engagement. Goose, uh, I don't know, pressing engagement. <laughs> I'm calling BS on him. Any idea why he's playing hooky tonight? Yeah, because coaching has become more important in his life than radio. He's coaching his son Jack's hockey team now and has him in first place. And unless we can kill penalties for him, we no longer matter to run. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, hooky, hockey, same things, same difference to us. But, Ron, enjoy your day off and enjoy that snow moon. You hear about this, Goose? Snow moon? You hear about this? Yeah, it's something like the Earth makes its closest orbit to the moon, so it appears brighter and clearer to the naked eye than normal, I guess. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, all you had to do was look up, and you'd see it. I mean, it was a super moon that peaked Tuesday morning around the time, I guess, Ron and his team with Jack were having their morning (laughs) skate. And, And it's called a snow moon. I looked this up because it happens in February, which historically was once considered the month with the heaviest snowfall, which it's not this month in New England. Clark, I know not what you speak. Snowfall? (laughs) What snowfall? I haven't seen snow in more than two years down here in the great state of Texas, and I actually wouldn't mind an occasional dusting in the month of February. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah, we we haven't seen much here in New England. Well, if you miss this supermoon, don't worry, people. There will be another supermoon in March. However, there will not, I said not, be another show like today's because, well, because we have Senator Kevin Y, member of the Hall's class of 2019 with us. We also have Hall of Fame voter Mary Kay Cabot, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, to talk about the Browns signing of Kareem Hunt. We have author Hank Gola and NFL historian John Turney here to review the class of 2020. Plus, we're going to get to the Colin Kaepernick saga, the Joe Flacco trade, the upcoming Oscars, and what's going on with these diva wide receivers like OBJ and Antonio Brown. So, Goose, what is going on? Well, the fact that their wide receivers says it all. Never have players who touch the ball so little have so much to say about their offense, their teammates, and their coaches. Hey, and what's going on with Ron? Huh? What's going on with him? Well, not, now that he's winning, I'm sure some divas are popping up in his locker room <laughs> as well. <laughs> well, anyway, we will push on sans Ron. A lot to get to, and we will right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Goose, before we get to the Flacco and Kaepernick situations, I want to ask you guys something last week that I didn't, and, and that's the season opener that's reportedly happening this year. And it doesn't involve the Super Bowl champion Patriots, at least not according to reports. Instead, in honor of the NFL's 100th birthday, it may be between the Bears and the Green Bay Packers because, well, because that's the NFL's oldest rivalry. And, Goose, since there's no Ron here today, I will ask you if you're Bill Belichick or a conspiracy theorist like me, how does that make you feel? Well, you know Bill. He isn't focused on September. That's way too far ahead. I don't think Belichick cares one bit who he plays, where he plays, or when he plays him. 
scheduling is out of his control, so he's not going to concern himself with it. All he's focusing on is the next day, next practice, and getting better. The old one-day-at-a-time mantra. It's served the Patriots pretty well over these last 18 seasons. Yeah, it has. I think all that he's focused on, Goose, is you finding him another wide receiver out of Kent State. Good luck. <laughs> well, speaking of history, the NFL seems to be into it, but it does seem to be a dead subject today. I can't tell you the number of colleges I've seen that are not offered anymore, and it really disturbs me. And I, I remember former Packers defense coordinator Fritz Schirmer once talking to his players about the ice balls prior to a 1994 playoff game with the Detroit Lions, and he said, they looked up to him and said, I- ice ball? Huh? What's that? He just shook his head and went on. So do you think anyone, Goose, outside of 345 Park Avenue really cares about history or the 100th anniversary of the league? Yeah, not really. You know, we're two of the few people that know about the ice ball. You know, if they really care about the ice ball, schedule the Cowboys and Packers on opening night. Those are the two teams played in that game. You know, but the Bears-Packers, they pay homage to the NFL's oldest rivalry, if, if that's that big a deal. I don't think it is. Not to the millennials, anyway. Yeah, yeah that's right. The NFL and us are probably the only people who care about the history of the game. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, we do care about it, and we're going to be recognizing it all year uh, because we do care about history. Uh, anyway, on to a couple blockbuster items in the news in the past week. The first was the soon-to-be-announced, as of, I think, March 13th, uh, trade of Joe Flacco to the Broncos. And the second is the NFL settlement of the Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed grievances. And, Goose, let's deal with the Flacco trade first. I saw a lot of people criticize the Broncos for making this deal. I think they paid a mid-round draft pick in 2019. But I'll be honest, I I like it because they have their first quarterback since Peyton Manning who can get the ball downfield. This guy's a pretty good down-the-field passer, and he's only, I think, 31. Plus, he's a Super Bowl winner. I mean, I understand that was six years ago, but I still think there's something left in the tank. And and to me, it's a marked and a significant improvement over what they have in Case Keenum. You know, and there's also a history of resurrecting quarterbacks in this league. Raiders did it with Jim Plunkett. Buccaneers did it with Trent Dilford. Buccaneers and the Broncos themselves did it with Manning. All won Super Bowls. I think Flacco really just needed to change the scenery. Scenery, you know, Denver's a good situation for any quarterback. He'll have a running game he didn't have in Baltimore and a better core of receivers. He's got the arm, and that thin mountain arrow is going to really allow right. him to stretch the field for the Broncos. He also gives him a presence in the huddle that they didn't have with Keenan. This guy's got a ring in his hand. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Plus, like in Baltimore, he's got a defense, too, they can rely on. I guess the, I guess the problem is here, um, I'm not sure why the Broncos invested $25 million in guaranteed money with Keenum in the first place, uh, although I do understand why they're ready to move on. But but to another veteran, I mean, they went from one to another in the space of, you know, 12 months, less than 12 right. months. I, I mean, I still believe they're going to draft a quarterback this year, don't you? I mean, uh, and maybe with the 10th overall pick. I mean, it seems to make sense. I think it depends on what's there. You know, you make trades like these because you don't necessarily like what you see in the mm-hmm. draft board. Mm-hmm. I think there's about a three-year window for Flacco, which gives Elway a two-year window to find the heir apparent quarterback. I, I don't think they'll right. force right. a quarterback at 10. If there's one worth taking, I, I could see the Broncos going the way, but I don't think there's a, a pressing need. we got to get a quarterback at 10. That's when you make mistakes in the draft day. Plus, it gives them a cushion with, with Flacco, too. I mean, if he plays well, you go, okay, let's play him two years, three years, whatever. He said it gives you some uh, wiggle room. Um, so anyway, let's just, for, for argument's sake, let's just say they do draft a quarterback. Does that mean they're running Flacco as they did Keenum for one year or, or no? And I guess that depends on the quarterback as well. 
Well, I tell you what, this is a, a play now league. Yeah. You know, the Chiefs set Mahomes for a full season and played him. You know, we go back to the, you know, Drew Brees, you know, Right. Philip Rivers sat one season. If you, if you sit the guy for one season, I think the kid benefits, but I think that's a long time to wait. I think the the Browns had hoped to sit Mayfield for the first season, but had to put him on the field. Uh, right. If they draft a quarterback at 10, I wouldn't be surprised if that quarterback's on the field by the end of the year. You know, the other thing I like about Flacco, Goose, is his demeanor. I mean, he's very even keeled. No highs, no lows, very even keeled. He knows what it takes to win. And he can he can live with that hype of of Denver football. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's a crazy right. football town. Yep. Um, okay, let's look at this from the other perspective. And that's Baltimore by rooting itself a Flacco, which I understand given their commitment to uh, Lamar Jackson, the Ravens are without a quarterback who, can, <laughs> let's face it, can actually throw the ball, and, and that's a huge problem. I, I know Jackson was six and one down the stretch, but Goose he was exposed by the Chargers in the playoffs. You saw it. I saw it. Everyone else saw it. And frankly, I know I've said this on this program before. But given the choice of Jackson or Tebow, Tim Tebow, I'm taking Tim Tebow because he's a better passer. People out there go, well, "We crazy?" No, he's a better passer actually. No, you know Jackson was only a fifty-seven percent passer in college. And you don't get better as you get older. I think you're either born with an accurate arm or you don't have it. So I don't see him improving that much in the NFL. I think what the Ravens are gambling on, strictly are his legs. You know, they're hoping the game continues to evolve toward the read option and his legs can come into play, much like the legs of Cam Newton came into play early in his career at the Panthers. You know, Newton wasn't a 60% passer either. And he's had a 14 rushing touchdown season, a 10 touchdown season, 58 career touchdowns. His legs are what make him dangerous. And I think the Ram, the Ravens are hoping that um, it's the legs of Jackson that'll give him time to become an NFL caliber quarterback. Okay, let's move on to the Kaepernick settlement. Uh, anyway, you slice it, this was a victory for Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed. The NFL didn't settle with Tom Brady when he fought Deflategate, and, and it promised not to settle here until, of course, <laughs> it did, which must mean what? Uh, that the league thought it would lose or that there would be some damaging evidence that would be revealed. So Colin Kaepernick won. Now what, Goose? Well, I'm not sure there was as much damaging evidence is the NFL's reluctance to go through the discovery process, which throws the books open. I think it's easier for the NFL to stomach paying off Kaepernick and Reed than exposing his books and its secrets to the public. Well, I, I see where his agent says that he definitely wants to play in the NFL again, which to me suggests the settlement, which was reported as between 60 and $80 million, was nowhere near that close. And, and, and I've got to agree. I mean, if, if you take the league to the cleaners, you're not coming back. Yeah. It's game, set, and match. But his agent says, no, 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 he, he wants to play. And Goose, I don't know, but that tells me he didn't get nearly what he was looking for other than, of course, victory. Well, here's another guy who isn't a 60% passer, hasn't played for two seasons. He's also quarterback who lost 16 of his last 18 starts. Yep, He's 31. Right. Is he a better quarterback now than he was in 2012 when he took the Niners to the Super Bowl? No, there are red flags galore for Colin Kaepernick, the football player, much less a social activist. Gooseman, would you sign him if you needed a backup? Yeah, I'd have signed him uh, in Carolina as a backup to Cam Newton. You know, you, you need an offense that his style fits. The Panthers have that offense. Baltimore with Jackson might be a fit, but if you bring in Kaepernick, you might slow the growth of Jackson because he'd be looking over his shoulder all the time. I thought, I thought Seattle with Russell Wilson would have been another option, but apparently the Seahawks kicked the tires on Kaepernick last fall and passed. Yeah, and they moved on. Yeah, same thing with yeah. Baltimore. Uh, one other item that was slightly overlooked in that settlement last week, and that was the Alliance of American Football tried to sign Colin Kaepernick. And he said, oh, yeah, sure, I'll play. But reportedly only for... <laughs> 
$20 million. That tells me, uh, on second thought, maybe football is not in his future after all. Maybe that's why the AAF needs some help bailing itself out with payrolls. Maybe he's holding up for the XFL. <laughs> Whoa, okay, all right, all right. Um, <laughs> hey, on one other note, Gooseman, I also saw, saw where Tim Tebow, the aforementioned Tim Tebow, turned down Steve Spurrier's offer to play for Orlando of the AAF. You know what? Good for him. He didn't demand money. Nope. He says, I'm moving on to a baseball career. And look, I don't care whether he makes it with the Mets or not, but the guy keeps plugging away. And Gooseman, more power to him. I know one thing. He'll never have to buy another meal in the state of Florida again. This guy was a legend <laughs> as a player. I, I, I hope he makes the Mets. I hope he one day plays for the Mets. Good Me too. Me too. I think we're all rooting for him. Anyway, uh, he's not alone. We're going to keep plugging away too because next up, it's Hall of Fame voter Mary Kay Cabot of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, another development last week that we did not mention in our last segment was Cleveland signing a free agent running back, Kareem Hunt, who was released by Kansas City last year after video surfaced of his striking a woman in, of all things, a Cleveland hotel. Now, of course, the man who drafted him, that would be... Cleveland GM John Dorsey, formerly of the Kansas City Chiefs, has added Kareem Hunt in a controversial move that has us wondering, how's this all going down in Cleveland? Well, here to answer that question is Hall of Fame voter and longtime friend of the show, Mary Kay Cabot of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And Mary Kay, first question, you surprised? Well, you know what? It caught me off guard, even though... Uh, the minute Kareem Hunt was first waived by the Chiefs and this all came down, of course, my first thought was John Dorsey drafted him in Kansas City, knows him better than anybody, and somewhere down the, down the line, he could end up in Cleveland. I think anybody that covers the Browns thought that, and, and that, that crossed all of our minds. But it kind of went out of the back burner, and, and quite frankly, I basically forgot about it. I mean, I even talked to uh, John Dorsey at, at the Senior Bowl and asked him a bunch of questions, and I did not ask him about Kareem Hunt. It just kind of went out of the back burner, flew under the radar for a little bit, and I just, uh, you know, it just wasn't in the forefront of my consciousness. So, yes, I was surprised on that day uh, when he went ahead and signed Kareem Hunt. Okay, let me ask you a direct question. You're a woman, and you've seen the video. Does this signing bother you? Well, you know, let me just say, of course, seeing the video, seeing that video, it's so very disturbing uh, to know that somebody could be capable of that. And then what bothered me even more was the fact that he really had to be held back and restrained from, you know, who knows what. So it's disturbing and it's horrifying and you never ever want to see anything like that ever happen. But I gave it 24 hours before I wrote my column about this, and I gave it a lot of thought. And I came to the realization, and this is what I wrote, basically, is that uh, even though that was a horrible and egregious thing that he did, uh, I do believe that if the Browns can bring him in and help him turn his life around so that he never does this again, so that he never harms another woman, another person, and that he ends the violence in his life. And if you go back and you look at 
all the people that he was surrounded with, all the people that he looked up to in his life, all the all the male role models he was supposed to have, so many of them, including his own regular, real biological father and his stepfather, in and out of prisons, uh, uncles, cousins, older brother. Uh, this was basically the, the family dynamic. If the Browns can rehabilitate or help rehabilitate this young man and help him turn into a productive, upstanding member of society who will never do something like this again. And furthermore, if he can make amends for what he did, atone for it in many ways, and then also go into schools, go into correctional facilities, and do whatever he can to also then go on to change other lives, then I can live with the signing. Well, there are a lot of ifs there, aren't there? There are a lot of ifs. I mean, he has, he's has he got a lot of work to do, and he's got a lot of things to prove. But honestly, I would rather have a good Kareem Hunt as a community asset in Cleveland than a not-so-good Kareem Hunt. I would rather have someone who will never do this again here or anywhere than someone who actually might ever strike a woman again. And I think now he has that opportunity before him because he has the resources. He has a chance to really absolutely get this thing turned around. So, Mary Kay, what's been the reaction of the people in Cleveland? Have they been as forgiving and as open-minded as you have? I would say the reaction has been mixed. It has been very divided. I would say right down the middle. Half the people believe that he deserves a second chance. Half the people are completely 100% disgusted that the Browns would even think about signing a young man who did something like this. But I think what you're looking at here is John Dorsey took a similar chance in Kansas City with Tyreek Hill. And so far, that one has worked out for him to the point where Tyreek Hill has become a productive member of society a very good football player. Of course, you're not going to take a chance on a bad football player. Everyone keeps saying, oh, well, it's because, you know, he's a good football player. Well, you know, nobody's going to go, you know, try to drag somebody in off the street that's a bad football player and put him on your football team. That's just not how this business works. So, yes, it is a prerequisite that you're going to come in and help this team try to get to a championship. So, you know, that being said, he he watched this chance, this big gamble that he took with Tyreek Hill, pay off in Kansas City, both on the field and off the field. So everything that I can tell, he has been a model citizen. His record has been expunged. He's either engaged or married to uh, the then-girlfriend that he punched and, and strangled. And he does a lot of good in the community, and he is an example that good can come from bad. And and I think that's maybe where John was coming from with this, too. I may have misheard you, but I think you mentioned the words championship and Browns are the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I heard the same thing. <laughs> When's the last time that's happened? <laughs> yeah, a long, long, long time ago. I mean, yes, uh, it's unbelievable to think that the Browns are thinking in those terms, but they really are. And I think you'll see more of that as the offseason goes along. I think you'll see John Dorsey continue to try to make some big, bold moves to get this team to winning as fast as possible. And with Baker Mayfield as their quarterback, you know, anything can happen. They're now playing in a very challenged AFC North. And it looks to me like 
you know, they actually could win the AFC North this year, and then who knows what can happen once you get into the playoffs and have that home field advantage. You know, he can't make any more bold moves like he did in signing Hunt. That's that's for sure. You know, he mentioned no. when they signed Hunt that he did extensive research into the situation, yet they never interviewed the woman. Why? Why was that? Yeah, and I, I was the one that asked John Dorsey that question. We had a small, uh, just of a beat reporter got an opportunity to sit with John Dorsey for 30 minutes before he actually then came downstairs and did a, another interview with the television cameras and the radios and things like that there. So we had our own session with him, and I asked him that very question. Did you talk to the woman involved? And he said, uh, no, because, you know, there were privacy issues and whatnot. And I said, you know, did you try? And he said, no. And um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I still think that they need to reach out to her, either her or her lawyer, and find out uh, what kind of amends she would want him to make, either to her or in the community, uh, you know, to women's groups, you know, what kind of speaking engagements, what would she uh, be somewhat satisfied with uh, for him to, to show that, you know, that he is truly remorseful for this and will never do this again. Mary Kay, what was his explanation? I mean, in a situation like this, isn't the at least one of your first moves to contact the victim and, and get his or her side, and in this case, her side? What was his explanation for not contacting her? Well, as, as I mentioned, he just he at first, at first mentioned that it was a privacy. It could be a privacy thing, and then you know when I just said, "Did you try?" and he said, "You know," he just said nope. no after that, and then yeah. nobody really followed up on it after that. Wow. And I don't, I don't think he like really loved obviously that line of questioning, um, but. Yeah, so I also I also asked them, you know, have you reached out to women's groups? And I think these are some things that they are planning to do, um, especially talking to women's groups and, you know, domestic violence, uh, you know, situations. I think they are planning on talking to those kind of people. I don't know if they are, ever will reach out to the victim, but I definitely think they should. Mary Kay, one last question about th- this whole overall situation, but just wondering, what in your mind, what message does this send to Browns fans and maybe to the NFL about how the Cleveland Browns are going to operate going forward? Well, I think that, you know, it, it says that they're going to do whatever it takes to win. Uh, but I also think uh, this really speaks to uh, the notion, the the idea that John Dorsey is willing to give guys second chances. He's always been that way. Tyreek Hill wasn't the first person uh, that he gave a second chance to. You know, the list is kind of long. He actually told me once, John Dorsey did, that, uh, you know, that his desire to do that, you know, could be one of his biggest flaws. Uh, But I think that he really, truly believes that uh, some young men are worth saving and that they have uh, good inside of them. And, and, and that might sign, sound Pollyanna-ish to you, what I'm saying, that, you know, maybe people are thinking that, you know what, come on, this is just about football. This is just about what Kareem can do on the field. And that is it primarily. Like I said, this would never have happened if he were an amazing football player. But I think also John Dorsey recognizes that not everyone 
uh, that's going to end up in the NFL had an opportunity to grow up uh, in the best surroundings, and some people uh, have gone off track, and I think he believes that there are plenty of these young men worth saving, and he's willing to take these kind of chances. Mary Kay, thanks so much for the time. Always, always appreciate talking to you. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Mary. Take care. That was Hall of Fame voter Mary Kay Cabot of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Up next, it's 2019 Hall of Fame inductee. Kevin Mawai. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, the past three years, we've had a logjam of offensive linemen waiting to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But none of them, and the Cowboys, I think, four top ten finalists the past two years. Anyway, none of them. Made it until center Kevin Mawai finally and mercifully broke the pileup early this month and crossed the threshold in the can as a member of the class of 2019. Now, Kevin joins us today from Arizona State, where he's working as an assistant to Herm Edwards. And Kevin, first of all, thanks so much for rejoining us. And second, congratulations on reaching the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I'm just glad this year I'm with you guys after getting in. And thank you. It's such a great <laughs> honor. It's, a, it's a, such a privilege and an honor, and, um, and I'm so excited. And I'm coming off the clouds a little bit, and it's starting to sink in. But, sure. but man, you know, who would ever thought? You know, uh, but I'm so excited about it. Well, let me ask you a question. I think you probably answered a thousand times already. But your initial reaction when you heard the knock on the door, and who's the first person you thought of when you were told? You're in camp. Well, the, the first, the first person. Well, when I got the knock, there was a moment earlier in the day when I told my wife I didn't think I was going to get in. I just didn't have a good feeling about it. And so then you fast forward, which was a slow fast forward. Three hours later, when I finally did get the knock, and uh, I mean, the knock happened at a moment where I just kind of I set my phone down in the room, just kind of paused for a minute, and I kind of took a deep breath, and then bam, 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 and I. I jumped up out of my chair, and all I, all I can say is, we got it. You know, and I, I looked at my wife, and I started crying. She started crying, and, and so she was the only one in the room with me, so she was obviously the first one to know about it. And um, it was just so thrilling. And then, you know, open door, got the congratulations from Mr. Baker, and then the first people that we let know was my son and my daughter, who neither one of them could be there because of school and athletics that, you know, they, they were committed to, and um, FaceTime both of them, and yeah, so it, it was exciting, and they were the first ones to know about it. Well, I mentioned there was a log jam, and there was. There were four offensive linemen, as you know, who are top ten finalists the past two years, including you, Tony Paselli, Alan Fanica, and Steve Hutchinson. Now, all of you guys are all decade players, and Alan Fanica was the Super Bowl champion. Now, you mentioned you told your wife, I, I don't think I'm going to make it this year. Are you surprised you were the first one in? No, I'm not surprised. I just think this, you know, and I've said this before, that every one of the guys on that finalist list are qualified and deserve to be in, and and any one of them could have went. You know, this year was, you know, when you're sitting in that room trying to figure out if you're going to make it, each year you cross off the automatics. Like last year, it was Ray Lewis. This year, it was going to be Tony Gonzalez, Ed Reed, and possibly Champ Bailey. So then you start doing the math, and you think, okay, well, there's 
14 guys trying to get four spots last year, or, you know, I think maybe one other first time I can't remember who all was there. And then this year, if Champ gets in, you're thinking, now it's 12 guys for two spots. Right. And any one of those 12 guys is going to get there. So you don't, you know, you don't think you're not going to get in, but you don't count on the fact that you're going to get in. And so you just kind of go, you just go along with it. And, you know, they haven't been there for three years or two years before. It's just, you go in there with no expectations because in that way you're not disappointed. And, um, and I've seen guys you know, in the last couple of years have been in there thinking they're going to get in the first year, and they don't, and they get upset about it. And I've seen guys sitting there for, like, their 10th year thinking they might beat it, and they don't get it. And, and you know, so I took it the approach. Like, let's just, just kind of roll with it. Whatever happens, happens. And would I have been disappointed? Yeah, no more than the last year or the year before. But, uh, man, I'm glad I don't have to wait again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I don't have to be waiting on that knock next year because it's, it's a – I mean, it's an emotional roller coaster that you're on during that time away. Kevin, this is your fifth year of eligibility. Tony Baselli's waited 13 years now, and Jerry Kramer waited 45 years. Can you tell our listeners how difficult the waiting is and what's the hardest part? It, yeah, it's like, you know, I talked to Mr. Kramer a lot about this, you know, when I was there. And then even Jerry Robinson, man, they waited 46 years or 43 years. And, you know, it's the hard part is you can't do anything about it. You've done whatever it is you can do. Your, your, your resume is out there for everybody to see. And it's picked apart. It's analyzed. It's, it's destructed. It's reconstructed. I mean, every which way it's pulled and prodded and, and for good or for bad. And then you just measure it up against everybody else that's in that room. And to get to the finalist list is hard enough in itself. But then when you're in that finalist list, now you're, like, talking about the best of the best that's available for that year. And how you voters decide that I was more influential in my position group than, say, somebody was in their position group but were equally one of the greatest, that's a task that I don't wish on anybody because, you know, like just take the three office line guys, for example, myself, uh, Baselli, you know, Fanica, and uh, Steve Hutchison. All three of those guys were remarkable players, and all three of them left an indelible mark on the game as far as how they played their position. And I think it's harder for the two guards because they both played the same spot. So now which one's better? Which one have more influence on their teams or their the game? And, you know, for Baselli, he was the best of the, in the game. He came in as the number one draft pick of a brand-new franchise that went to the AFC Championship game the first year of existence. And he played at that level, that high level, for the time that he was in the league. And I know the knock on Tony is his tenure, that he only played seven years. And, and – so you got to gauge this. What he did in that seven years was comparable to a guy that played, and for me, it was 16, or Tony Gonzalez played double digits, or Ed Reed that played, you know, 16 or 15 years. And, and that's where the hard part comes. What, is, what do people value more, the longevity or the, the excellence in such a short period of time? And so, so I don't know. I, you know, I just I can't imagine just waiting. I, 40-something years or 20 years or whatever it is, 
to sit in that room, however many times you become a finalist, it's awful. I know John Lynch was like this. I think this was John Lynch's seventh year as a finalist, not like yeah. as, you know, the 25 semifinals, but as a finalist to sit in that room that many years and not get the knock. I just, it, you know, you get to a point where like, well, at least I get to go to the Super Bowl for free. You know, and I think that's the only way you can just handle it. Otherwise, you just drive yourself nuts, pull your hair out, trying to figure out why you're not getting in. Kevin, since you brought it up, um, how much of a factor do you think longevity should be in consideration of Hall of Fame candidates? Well, I think longevity combined with productivity is what makes a difference. I mean, there's guys that play 15 years in the league, and they only started maybe 50 or 60-something games in their whole career, but they're reliable. They were reliable in what they did. But for a guy that played my length, and, and I don't even know, let's talk about Bruce Matthews, who played 18 years in the league, and he made the Pro Bowl 17 or 18 times. It's like, you know, his 18 Pro Bowls, or I think that's what it was, or 16, versus Tony Vasselli's seven Pro Bowls, you know, it's like you can't compare the two because the longevity at that level is so much greater than the excellence at the shorter shorter term of you know experience. And and so if we talk in those terms, like I did something that the very handful of guys do. The guys don't play 16 and 18 years in the NFL. Not a ton of them. You got to think there's 2,000 players every year in the league. How many of them are in their 15 plus years? And it's a very small number of guys, but for them to excel at that level at at that age group, like I mean, you know, I made the all I made all pro in year seven, or sixteen or fifteen or whatever it was, and so my play was at a standard at a level that didn't dip. And then there were some years where I didn't have the excellence that I did early on, but to show that I could play at that level at that point in my career to show that I wasn't just a flash in the pan or played four or five great years and just hang on, hung on. I didn't just hang on. I played at the top level all the way through. And I think that makes a big difference. And I think it's a way more. So who's going to present you? My wife is Tracy. Um, it, for me, it's, there was never a discussion. There was never a thought or I had to figure it out. I mean, when I started, my name came up as a semifinalist the first year of eligibility, and my kids started talking about it because we watch the Hall of Fame induction every year. And um, my my daughter's like, I want to do it. My son, why do you get to do it? And I'm like, neither one of you going to do it. My mom's <laughs> only doing it. And so it was, there was never, never a, a wait and see. I mean, I've had some great coaches and very influential coaches in my career. My agent, the same agent for my entire career, and. And all of them played a vital role in my success, but none of them more so than Tracy. And we've been together for almost 30 years, both dating and, and being married. And uh, I went to the very first game I started as a redshirt freshman in college. And she went through all 40 games in college and 240-something games in the NFL. There's nobody that's more deserving of this honor than her. Hey, Kevin, since you've moved from the playing field now to really sort of the coaching situation, I realize you're an analyst there at ASU, but only two centers inducted in the past 21 years, only two, you and Dermani Dawson. Yep. Who should be the next? Who should be the next? The next center? Yeah. Man, yeah. You know, Your guy studies the game. Yeah. You know, I don't know. There, there you know. 
When I think about centers that played the game, I think about guys that changed the way the position was played. And Damani was an athletic guy, kind of was a forerunner to what I did and how I really changed the way the position is viewed. And Dwight Stevenson, way back when he got in, he's this guy that that could reach a three technique and do some things athletically. You know, so fast forward beyond me, I, I really don't know. I, I don't know. Cause I, and if I'm being honest with you, like, I never cared enough about other guys that played my position to want to know who the next best guy was mm-hmm. because I was worried about me being that guy all the time. And there's some great guys. Jeff Saturday's name keeps popping up. You know, he plays for two great teams with a great quarterback. Guys in Denver keep saying Tom Maven, who was in a draft mate, he was in the same draft class as me, what he accomplished during his time. But I, I, I can't tell you. I really don't know. Nick Mangold from the Jets, after he took over for me, became the pillar at that position. And he yeah, played the good. game a completely, yeah, played a completely different way than I did. And he played it for 11 years. Uh, you know, so he's a guy that I would look at, you know, He'll be up in four years from now, and whether or not he'd be a first ballot guy, I don't know. But I think he's a guy really, out of all of them that I've really known, and pay attention. He's a guy that, that took the mantle of that position and played at the highest level the entire time he played in the league. Kevin, we got to run, but thanks so much, and congratulations again. We'll see you this summer in Canton. I'm looking forward to you guys. Thank you so much. So are we. Yeah, that's great. Thanks so much. <laughs> that was Hall of Famer Kevin Moy. That's got a nice sound to it, doesn't it, Kevin? Kevin Moy, class of 2019. <laughs> Thanks again. Up next is the Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're almost at the halfway point of our program. So, Robert, could you tell that guy over there? See him over there? Yeah, tell him to do something with that whistle. That's the two-minute warning. There it is. It's the two-minute drill. That's right. Take it away, Gooseman. Chris Sims claims the Patriots' interest in trading for Odell Beckham convinced the Giants to keep him. What do you have to do to convince the Steelers to keep Antonio Brown? Send them Tom Brady. (laughs) Brown says coach Mike Tomlin's claim he quit on the team is untrue. So what did he do this year in Pittsburgh? Plenty. Made a lot of fantasy football owners wealthy. Colin Kaepernick asked for $20 million to play for the Alliance of American Football. Was he really asking not to play? Uh, no. He really wanted to pay his lawyer's fees. <laughs> Tim Tebow says the Alliance can't pay him enough to give up his pursuit of a roster spot with the New York Mets. Wise choice or wishful thinking? Well, Gooseman, now that we've seen the Alliance's books, wise choice. Does size matter in the matter of 5'9 Oklahoma Heisman Trophy winning quarterback Kyler Murray? Yeah, it will when he meets Aaron Donald. (laughs) The Ravens allegedly will trade Joe Flacco to the Broncos. Where does that leave Case Keenum? As the next guest on HGTV's House Hunters. How about the next guest in the Talk of Fam Network? Yeah. Oh, how about that? Let's get him on here. Yeah. What he can replace Kaepernick... Ron Borges. He can replace Ron. <laughs> what did Kaepernick and Eric Reed get to settle their collusion suit against the NFL? A lot of free press, plus interviews at their convenience with the Talk of Fame Network. 
Yes, sir. Did the NFL settle to avoid embarrassing emails, text, and owner testimony? It settled to avoid an embarrassing public defeat. Should NBA Commissioner Adam Silver jump to the NFL? Only if he wants to make $40 million a year. Is Silver the answer to the NFL's Goodell perception problem? No, but he is a silver lining. That's the end of that. That's the end of our first hour, but don't go away. We have John Turney, Hank Ola, OBJ versus Antonio Brown, and the class of 2020 coming up in the next 60 minutes. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network, where Rick and I are flying alone today. Ron is off, and Goose, too bad, too, because I bet he'd have something to say about Odell Beckham Jr. and Antonio Brown. Yeah, I know you do. Um, So let's get started here. Tell me, are both these wide receivers with other teams when the 2019 season opens? Brown, yes. Beckham, no. I think Brown has worn out his welcome in the locker room as well as the front office. And I'm not sure Beckham has quite achieved that daily double yet. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And and, and plus, the, the Giants just gave OBJ a long-term contract. So I, I agree with you. I think he stays, uh, even though he can be disruptive and he does have a history of injuries. Uh, but I'm also with you. I have no doubt Antonio Brown goes just because, to me, at this point, it seems like it's addition by subtraction. Plus, he's become toxic. Um, you know, the reports out there that I know after meeting with Art Rooney uh, this week, the Steelers will try to move him. But I, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I just would like to know what you think after what he's tweeted. And I'm talking about Antonio Brown and what he said. And again, I'm talking about Antonio Brown on Instagram, as well as how he's behaved this offseason everywhere. Wouldn't you be wary of bringing him into your locker room if you're another team? Yeah, Clark, dating to my days working the NFL drafts, I'm a character guy. Me Good too. character. The less headaches you have off the field, the less headaches you'll have on the field. You know, I want a team of good players, good teammates. If your locker room is strong enough, you can handle one bad actor. But when you start collecting them, two, three, and four of them, that's when you lose control of the situation. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%, Goose, and I'll be honest with you. To me, it's a little like the T.O. situation. I mean, both these guys have talent, but neither's won anything, and both can be more trouble than they're worth. Yeah, usually those guys are fine when you're winning and they're getting the football. But when you aren't winning or you aren't getting the football, that that's when problems and egos arise. You know, it's not surprising that the problems with Braun arrive with the emergence of Juju Simon-Schuster as the lead receiver. So let's say the Steelers get rid of Antonio Brown. What do they get in return or what should they try to get in return? Well, I think ideally you want a first-round pick, but he's 30. Um I'd be surprised if they get a one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, whoever takes um, Brown is, is doing you a favor, taking him off your hands. So I, I, it won't be a one. I'd say that. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess we just have to stay tuned. Which, as a matter of fact, is what we're hoping you do. So don't touch that dial because we'll be right back. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. 
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. A week ago, we had running back Trent Richardson of the Alliance of American Football on here to talk about the new league and how it was a stepping stone, as he put it, toward the NFL. Now, of course, we hear those steps... Those stones come at a steep price. The Carolina Hurricanes owner Tom Dundon making a $250 million investment, as he calls it, to cover the league's alleged shortfalls. And in turn, he becomes the league's chairman. Now, to be clear, he said it was more about opportunity than urgency. But, Gooseman, isn't this just another reminder of the cost, and I mean high cost, of starting a new pro sports league? Yeah, especially when the deep pockets of the NFL aren't involved. You know, the NFL did fund NFL Europe, but is sitting this one out. This way, the NFL gets to reap all the benefits of a developmental league without any investment or risk. So, Goose, what's your best guess as to where this league is in three years? Clark, I think the league will still have some legs, but there's going to be a financial weeding out process. You know, you can put a cap on player salaries, but when you bring in a Steve Spurrier, Mike Mertz, Dennis Erickson, Mike Santer as head coaches, your costs are going to rise. These guys aren't working for free. You have to pay for the credibility their names bring to your league. You know, for the league to work long term, I think the NFL needs to get involved in some way, shape or form financially. Yeah, well, speaking personally, I hope it's still around, Gooseman. It gives me another reason to go back to San Diego, as if the anyone fleet. needs a reason. Yeah, as if anyone really Get needs a reason. Manny, no, no. Manny Machado's got 300 million reasons to go to San Diego. <laughs> anyway, I do not have a fleet hat, but uh, yeah, I'll probably get one when I go after the summer. Okay, well, Goose, as you may know, this Sunday, that would be February 24th, it's a special occasion. And no, not because it's the third week of the Alliance of American Football League or because they have discount sales on San Diego fleet hats. Nope, it's because it's Oscars night. And as we do each year on this program, we pick our own Oscars. Only this is our Hall of Fame Oscars. This is our Hall of Fame Oscars, as in the best sports movies of all time. Now, I know this is going to be tough because there's no Ron, okay? There's no Ron. So, Goose, you're flying alone, but we're going to have to persevere, and persevere we will. So let's take it right from the top. If you were to name the best football movie of all time, the football movie that you're putting in your Hall of Fame, what would it be? Remember the Titans. Denzel Washington is great in everything he does, but he was especially on his game, so to speak, in this movie. Yeah, it was a good movie. I like it. Um, But I think I'd go for Everybody's All-American. You remember that one? Um, Yes, sir. Dennis Quaid. And uh, I think it was basically based on Billy Cannon's life story or really an out-of-the-box story. This is one of my favorites, The Best of Times with Kurt Russell and um, uh, uh, Robin Williams. I, I love that movie. I mean, it's hysterical. Um, but I, anyway, um, I, I thought it was a great movie. But those two, I think I'd probably choose the best of times. Um, but before we go farther, Goose, and, and get on this list, let me ask you a quick question here because I was hedging on those. Those aren't really great movies. I mean, they're good ones. They're really good ones. Why isn't there a great football movie? Because they're great baseball, boxing, and baseball, and basketball movies. Heck, I mean, Chariots of Fire, not only was a great movie about running, it won the Academy Award for Best Picture. So why no blockbuster for football. Come on, haven't you seen Paper Lion? Good, great <laughs> movie see, from the 60s. I did see Paper Lion, and I read it. I read it. Alex Karras, John Gordy, Dick LeBeau, George Plimpton. <laughs> you know, when, when Chip Namius was a PR guy for the Oilers, he used to show that movie every year at the start of the training camp. It was football gold. 
How come you're not in that movie, Goose? It was in the Detroit Lions. <laughs> you know where they filmed that? No. A school called, called Cranbrook, which produced Heisman Trophy winner Pete Dawkins. Wow. Is that right? Yes, sir. Wow. Terrific. Well, we got some trivia here on the Talk of Any Network. That would be Dr. Data. Okay. Um, now, Doc, on to some of the all-time greats, and that's moving away from football. And let's start with baseball. You have to put one in your Hall of Fame? Which one's it going to be? The Natural. Robert Redford, Glenn Close, Wilford Brimley, directed by Barry Levinson, who gave us one of the most oh. underrated football movies of all time, Diner. Barry Levinson from Baltimore. Baltimore. Uh, you ever see Fear Strikes Out with Anthony Perkins? No, did I see the movie? I saw the real-life version with Jimmy Parasol running oh. around the bases backwards. <laughs> yeah, I, I tell you what, I love watching Jimmy Parasol, but... Um, he was uh, extraordinary. Let's put it that way. He was extraordinary talent <laughs> and, 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 and oddball, too. Um, I, I'm not saying it would make my hall goose, but um, uh, I, I guess my favorite would be The Natural. I, I guess that would be my, right. my favorite. Um, but uh, A League of Their Own, I thought, was really good, too. And, and that's a completely, obviously, it's about the women's league. And honestly, in a tiebreaker, I think I choose A League of Their Own because every time I see it, I tear up. I always just get sad at the end. But Tom Hanks was great in it. Really good cast. Um, Loved it. Um, anyway, that, that was a good movie. And both of those. Can't miss with either one of them. Um, let's go on to basketball. Where, where are you going? Hoosiers. End of discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, to me, this one was easy. I, I could watch Hoosiers a thousand times, and I think I'm still waiting for Jimmy Chitwood to make that final shot. Didn't you go to the school where they they, uh, yes, sir. they won that? Yeah, I drove on a, my training camp tour. drove down to Milan, Indiana. Yeah, right. You didn't see Jimmy Chitwood. He still makes the shot, though. Look at that. Wait for the end of that game. Never God, I'd love to see that. Yeah, never misses. Hey, on to boxing. I think most people think this might be easy, but I don't. Where are you going? Million Dollar Baby. I like anything yeah. Clint Eastwood's in. Go ahead. Make my day, Clark. What's yours? <laughs> well, mine is, I do think the best boxing movie is Raging Bull, but my favorite is Cinderella Man. Uh, it's the story of James Braddock, as you Go know, it starred Russell Crowe. And was, uh, to me, it was a great movie. And Goose, I thought better, and honestly, much better than one you mentioned, which is Million Dollar Baby. But it was Million Dollar Baby that got the awards. It won four Academy Awards, uh, including Best Picture, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actor. That's the signal. We're about to hand out another Oscar. What about uh, no, shot? no, we're moving on. You're no, killing. we're going on to the best performance by a Talk of Fame Network Hall of Fame inductee. Goose, come on forward. That would be our Rick Goslin, also known as Dr. Data, Canton Class of 2004. And Goose Man, I'll be honest with you, I haven't heard what you got today, so let her rip, whatever it is. Oklahoma quarterback Kyler Murray will be the feature attraction at the NFL Combine this month. Not only did he win the Heisman Trophy as college football's best player last season, he is turning his back on a baseball career. He was a ninth overall selection of the 2018 baseball draft by the Oakland A's and signed a $5 million contract with the stipulation that he be allowed to play a final college season at Oklahoma. That was a mistake because Murray put himself on the map as an NFL prospect. Now Murray says he will go forego baseball, pay back a signing bonus, and devote himself to an NFL career. That's all fine and good. He certainly has the talent to play in the NFL, but he ha- does he have the size? And no, I'm not worried about his height. He's only 5'9", but he'll measure, I'm sure, 5'10 at the Combine. Doug Flutie went to a Pro Bowl at 5'9". Russell Wilson won a Super Bowl at 5'10". Baker Mayfield proved last season you don't need to be 6'4 to succeed at quarterback in the NFL. He's 6'0 even and set an NFL rookie record with his 27 touchdown passes. But there's a reason the NFL likes its quarterback 6'4, 230 pounds. 
You need to be tall enough to see down the field and thick enough to withstand a blindside hit. Mayfield plays at 215 pounds. Murray comes out of Oklahoma at 195 pounds. How many hits can a body that size take on Sundays? You know, in college, Murray would, could run away from pass rushers and minimize contact. But the pass rushers in the NFL are bigger, stronger, and much faster than they were in college. He's going to run. He's going to be able to get away at times. But he's also going to get hit. How many times can his body take J.J. Watt and his 288 pounds landing on him? That's the concern in this draft. How big can Murray get, and how long can he last at that weight? Gooseman, that's a good question, but you mentioned Russell Wilson. He's another guy who forewent, I guess, <laughs> forewent his uh, baseball career for football. He's 5'11 and 211 pounds, and he's heavier now than he was when he was a rookie. So I realize that Russell Wilson's the aberration, but if Murray could play like Russell Wilson, basically using the sidelines as his friend, couldn't he survive like Russell Wilson? You know, Russell came out of uh, you know, four years as a starter in college. Kyler Murray's been a one-year starter. And this is still fairly new to him, being a starter and running the huddle. And uh, there's going to be a lot coming at him that wasn't coming at him in the Big 12. Okay. Well, what advice would you give him, Goose? Baseball or football? Oh, I'd play baseball. Yeah, me too. I, th- I think he's anyway. a better football player, but he'll make more money and have a longer career playing baseball. Thanks, Goose, man. That's going to do it. Don't forget to tune in Sunday to see the Oscar Award winners we did not mention. <laughs> I did not. Up next, we're going to hear from Arthur Hankola. And nope, it's not in the movies. It's on football. So stay tuned. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Like Mary Kay Cabot in the first hour, our next guest is no stranger to us. He's former New York Post and Daily News writer Hank Gola, whom all of us got to know over the years, either in a press box, at events, or both. Hank has written a book entitled City of Champions that chronicles the story of a high school football team from Hank's hometown of Garfield, New Jersey, that won consecutive state championships in 1938 and 39, and that was then invited to play in a charity game at the Orange Bowl for a national, mythical national championship in Miami, Florida. Hank, thanks for joining us. And first of all, who or what gave you the idea to retell this story? Well, I learned the story at my father's knee, as anyone did growing up in Garfield, New Jersey, that uh, the Garfield Boilermakers won the national championship in 1939, and that Benny Babula, which is a fantastic name made for TV or for the movies, <laughs> that's just a hint out there, uh, kicked a winning <laughs> field goal with about uh, two minutes left in the game. So, so I grew up on it, but I was, I was actually coming back from, a, from a, covering a, a Patriots game in Foxborough, and I was just recovering from the mind-numbing Belichick press conference, and the and the synopsis started. They, you know, they started to fire again, and I realized it was 75 years since the uh, uh, since the national championship. This was in 2014. So uh, I put together a uh, a big end zone piece for the Daily News, and after I had written it, I realized I had so much left over, and there were so many stories that were left unresearched. Uh, and that I could turn it into a book, which I eventually did. And uh, it took me three and a half years to research and write it, but I did. I just kind of followed every kind of limb out there to the end of the re- to the uh, nth degree of research, and uh, that's what I came up with. Okay. Now, second, we're talking about a team that played 80 years ago, right? Right. Okay. Now, second, we're talking about a team that played 80 years ago, right? Well, I probably I had to go to families for the most part. There were there were two living players who were uh, still 
um, with it, so to speak. And one of them from Garfield was tremendous and unfortunately uh, uh, ended up uh, getting terminal cancer uh, kind of two years into this. But, uh, but you know, Mitch Album had, what, Tuesdays with Maury. I had Fridays with Walter Young. And uh, we would meet, and he was great, and I got a lot of stuff from him, and he ended up telling me I knew more about the game than he did, but uh, it was fun. And uh, for the rest of it, I just filled in the research with uh, with uh, going to libraries and 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 going into them, hitting the microfilm uh, machines. That was kind of my portal to the past, and I kind of lived day by day by day, just researching uh, these two teams because I, I gave equal uh, kind of attention to the Miami team as I did to the Garfield team to build this game up to what it eventually became on that Christmas night. Mac, you said that uh, your your ninety five year old mother was the inspiration for the book. Did she go to Garfield as well? No, she's an honorary boilermaker. <laughs> <laughs> She got there. She grew up in Bayonne, New Jersey, but she she grew up. Uh, she got there in nineteen four. Uh, my my parents married in nineteen fifty, so she's been there. Uh, she qualifies as a Garfieldite, uh, but yeah, uh, she's uh, she's ninety six now. She read the entire book. She's still very sharp and uh, you know able to give me some criticisms here and there, <laughs> okay, <you've laughs> which I accepted my... very gracefully. <laughs> Thank you. Piqued my curiosity. Whatever ever became of Benny Babula? Well, that is a very good question because, you know, most of these guys went straight into the service. They they started their college careers, and he did at Fordham, which was which was a big-time program back then, uh, number six in the country, as a matter of fact, uh, but blew out both of his knees in his freshman year, so never got to his potential. But like I said, most of these guys, their college careers were cut short anyway, they uh, all but two players on the on both combined rosters ended up in in the service, either you know fighting World War II, and some of them um, uh, didn't come back. And I have their stories in there too, because I follow I follow these guys through World War II and then through the uh, through the rest of their lives as well. Well, you know, like, uh, I, I thought one of the things that made the book terrific was that uh, it's more about it's not just a football book; it's about immigrants and their children yeah. trying to make it in America, coming out of the depression. Uh, World War II sort of hanging over their heads. And you mentioned Walter Young, and, and, and one of the stories I'd like you to tell is uh, uh, my understanding is, and I think it's reflective of the men uh, of that time, uh, right. he carried this guilt around for 70-some-odd years. Ooh, yeah. Uh, and you became the parish priest who absolved his sins, and I wonder if you can tell that story. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was one of the coolest things that that came out of this book. But uh, uh, Walter was the uh, left end on the naked reverse play that Garfield uh, scored its second touchdown on, and uh, he had to pick up the uh, the safety on the Miami team, uh, who was the fastest player on the team, and in fact their best player. He 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 had breakaway run after breakaway run. These guys went both ways, by the way, so they were always on the field, but. Uh, in making the block, he thought he had caught him from the side, and then it was a legal block. That that night, he he ended up on the ground looking for a penalty flag, and there was none. But he had this kind of suspicion that he had committed a foul and should have been penalized, and perhaps Garfield had won the game unfairly. Uh, so when I met him at the homecoming game in 2014, he told him his, told me the story, and I said, Walter, look, there's a YouTube uh, uh, f- a film of the game. Uh, and we could go back and actually look at the play, which we did um, day after Thanksgiving. I remember this very well. And we sat down at, the, at his kitchen table, and we, we went play by play by play. And he knew it was coming. He said, okay, this is it, right? I said, yeah. And you could see uh, 
it kind of kind of in the corner. It wasn't that clear, but you could actually see him make the block uh, head on, and then it was a good block. So 75 years after making that block and, and living with this, maybe thinking that he uh, he should have been penalized, he realized that he hadn't made a good block. So his conscience was clear at that point. And it was really cool because he kept saying, hey, can I see that again? Can I see that again? And we must have run it back about 10 times. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it was one of the greatest moments that, that came out of this book. And I've got a lot of those just just from people who, uh, you know, either reliving their youth again. I I, I just uh, sat down with the, um, the water boy's wife. Can you imagine that? And she was reading the book and said, you know, this is tremendous. I feel like I'm 15 again. So it's cool stuff that, like that that makes it worthwhile. Uh, you, you talked, as Rick asked you a little bit about Benny Babula, a uh, great name. Uh, and, you know, to me, he's like the kind of guy who, uh, that you don't see that much of today, you know, the sort of local hero. Uh, yeah. Remains a hero for the rest of everybody's life, including probably for you. What was it like for you growing up? And seeing Benny Babula around town and oh. knowing he had been material. Oh, yeah. Well, Benny uh, took over his father's meat distribution business. So even though he had blown out both knees, he was a pretty strong guy. And when we were kids, we would, uh, we would sit outside Fila's, uh, Fila's butcher shop, and we would wait for Babula's truck to pull up to the store. And we would just watch in awe as he would take the side of beef. He would be, he would have this long white coat, this bloody white coat, and he'd take the side of beef and just throw it over his shoulder and carry it in like it was nothing. It was like, whoa, look at this guy. <laughs> so he was, he was, he was some specimen even then. <laughs> carpet was also split. I was just going to ask one quick question. Carpet was split into two sides of town, as I understand it, that you described in a way that uh, yeah. one would talk about. Yeah, and, and even when I was in high school, the the, uh, the two sides of town were were uh, Pollock Valley and Guinea Heights, and uh, so there was a Polish town and a Polish side of town and an Italian side of town, and uh, even though they were kind of rivals, they concentrated more on their similarities than their differences, and this is why they came together and and won this championship. But in the, I graduated high school in 1972. And back then, uh, if you had Coach Hollis for a gym, and Coach Hollis was an assistant coach on this 39 team, uh, you would look forward to the last uh, gym class of the year, and Coach Hollis would bring out this big rope, and he would say, all right, he would say, guineas on this side, Pollocks over here. And you'd have this gigantic tug of war. There might be a German or or maybe a Portuguese guy like you, uh, just kind of in the middle there. And they would split up, and it would be basically even, and you'd, and you'd go at it, and it was terrific. Um, I don't think they can do that anymore, sadly, but uh, it was great back then. <laughs> exactly, Hank. Can you imagine if there was social media around then? Well, right, exactly, yeah. Well, there were good things about not, so, having, not, not having social media around. Hank, you mentioned earlier to Goose that your mom offered criticisms of the book. Yeah. What exactly did she say? <laughs> what exactly did she say? Well, 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 kind of very, very slight. She just, uh, you know, she thought I should should not have criticized people as much as I did maybe in the book. I wasn't that hard on people, but she thought I should have been maybe a little easier on, say, Davy Eldridge from Miami than I was. So that sort of thing. Uh, you know, she wants she wants to be, you know, but I, you know me, I'm not that nice of a guy. <laughs> <laughs> So, but that was that was the kind of thing that it was. But the, overall, I think she really enjoyed it. And 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 again, look, uh, you know, for for people her age, I think this is really a great uh, 
stroll down memory lane. And it is, even is for us baby boomers. I, I think uh, a lot of the people my age really appreciate it because it's about our our parents' generation. And really, I, I think what this book is, it's the greatest generation in the making. We write a, we we read a lot about the World War II, but this is this is how they got there. And these guys, they learned their lessons on the playing field and applied them later on the battlefield. Uh, so for me, it was just a joy to go through this and to find it, find out and just kind of make the connections and the, and to pick up their values, which I think sometimes are actually sorely lacking today. To go back and look at what they these guys believed in is is kind of cool. Thank. We got about thirty seconds quickly. Is there anything in the town or the school that commemorates that team? Well, uh, yeah, they're in the gym. There's a banner up there, and the and the town is the Garfield is known as the city of champions because of this team. And if you drive into Garfield today, you've got greeted by a big sign that says "Welcome to Garfield, City of Champions." So maybe people don't realize why it's the city of champions, but it's out there. And of course, that's the title of the book. Except Hank Ron keeps telling me that it's Boston that's the city of champions, not Garfield, New Jersey. Yeah, I know. I, I'm getting that all the time. You know, actually, I have a, I have some information about Brockton, Massachusetts. So maybe that'll keep the people up there happy. There you go, Hank. Thanks so much, and good luck with the book. Oh, oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on. That was Hank Gola, author of City of Champions, available now in your local bookstore. Up next, it's NFL historian John Turney on the Hall of Fame class of 2020. You listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We spent the past month talking about the Hall of Fame's class of 2019, and for good reason. We elected that class earlier this month, so it stands the reason we are going to be talking about them. But it's time now to look forward. It's what my father-in-law always tells me, look forward, and we will, to the class of 2020. Now, we don't have Ron with us today as we've mentioned, but we do have NFL historian and great friend of the show, John Turney of Pro Football Journal, to help us sort out next year's class. And John, first things first, you've seen the players eligible for the class of 2020. They're guys like Troy Palomalu, Patrick Willis, Reggie Wayne, John Abraham. Your overall impression at first glance of the class? Well, I think they're strong players. Uh, I see a couple that are uh, certainly early early ballot elective, elected kind of guys. Um, I think Abraham will probably will have to wait, being a little bit one-dimensional. But Palomalu, I think, is a legitimate first ballot consideration, as is Willis. Though with Willis, he had the short career, so that is always that always throws the candidacy into question. Well, since you mentioned first ballot, I want to go straight to there. You shocked me with Palomalu, but um, I, I'll get right on to that. As you know, I mean, there's been a, a first ballot mania with the Hall's voters lately, and we had three this year, we had three last year, and we've had eight in the past three years. It's a, a point of concern with us. I'm talking about uh, Goose and Ron and I. But uh, is there one candidate, and I guess you mentioned Palomalu, among the first-year eligibles for the class of 2020, that you would make a first ballot choice. And I'm not talking about could make, would make. 
Well, obviously, since I, I, you know, clearly don't have a vote, you know, I don't have, you know, that kind of gravitas. But if you were to make one, it would be Palomalo. But the answer to the question is, no, I don't think there's anybody that leaps off the page and says, this is a greatest of all time at his position, or one of the greats of all time at his position, that is had such a... Uh, definitive and dominant career that he absolutely has to be a first ballot. No, none of these people jump out to me if, if that's the way you put the question. Yeah, but you, you mentioned Patrick Willis, too. I, I want to ask you quickly about Willis, since you mentioned him. Why We don't have a guy like Carl Mecklenburg in. We don't have a guy like Randy Gratishar in. And yet you talked about Patrick Willis. You mentioned as a possible first ballot guy. How is that possible? I mean, it's, I, don't, I, I don't get that. If, if those two well, guys aren't in... Why would Willis? You're an historian. It would just go by by. Uh, frankly, maybe I have a bias towards linebackers who were just great at stopping the run and in coverage. So to me, that was more of an eye test reaction, not based on the length of his career, not necessarily based on how many All Pros and Defensive Players of the Year he didn't get any of those, by the way. But he was All Pro quite often, and it was a, an era where most of the linebackers, inside backers, were middle back backers. So to me, it was an eye test. He just did little things that were on the level of Gratishar. When we graded the all-time best middle linebackers recently, we had him in our top ten. Does that translate to first ballot? Not necessarily. But it's just something that I saw about him that was great. His smarts, his quickness, his uh, diagnose in run and pass and, and not being fooled by play action, those types of things. So it's not that I'm right. It's just that, uh, just my view. John, aren't Jason Taylor and John Abraham the same guy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Except that, let me, let me say this. T- t- Taylor had six more sacks. He played 30 more games. Both of them ca- uh, caused 48 fumbles. And if, if Taylor's a first ballot, what, what does that say about John Abraham? Exactly, which is why I was really concerned about it a few years ago when I I didn't want to make fun of a guy, a great player such as Taylor, but when I mentioned Marchetti, uh, Deacon Jones, Reggie White, and Bruce Smith, and Jason Taylor is the only first ballot defensive ends, that was meant to be the old Sesame Street line, one of these things is not like the others. Right, right. And it lowers the bar for people to say, well, if Jason Taylor was a first ballot, then what about a Jared Allen? What about a John Abraham? Right. And that's, that's the, the slippery slope of the first ballot. And that's what I wanted to get across to people. But, of course, you know, <laughs> you know to the degree they listened to me uh, in that particular thing, they didn't. Because you look at Jared Allen, he's in the same group. 136 yes. acts. He played 40 fewer games than Taylor. Right. There's there's a group of these guys uh, that are, um, you know, Dwight Freeney is another one that will be coming up that are all in that same kind of didn't play the run as well in terms of making big plays in the run game behind the line of scrimmage, you know, maybe 30 or 40 or 50 in their career, whereas the really good ones made 80, 90, or 100, plus their 130 or 140 sacks. That's the kind of thing that I look for. Let me ask you this. Is is Julius Peppers a cut above this group? In my opinion, yes. I think 
he, it, when you'll see his stats, and I could send them, and I've, I've published them before, he did make more plays behind the line of scrimmage. He also deflected a high number of passes, and he played the left side most of his career. The other guys we're talking about are blindside guys. And, and Rick, throughout your career, when you picked all pro teams, you were always careful to pick a strong side guy and a weak side guy because you knew the difference in their responsibilities. And Peppers, even though he's a tremendous pass rusher, he played the left side, whereas these other guys uh, didn't have to deal with the chips quite as much. You know, John, is it the top seven sack artists, Bruce Smith played the right side and the next six played the left side. Yes, that's right. And that's, of course, back in the... In the 50s and 60s, the, the right tackle was the left tackle. I mean, that was that was the power side. Um, well, I'm, let me throw a name off here. A guy named Brian Waters was up last year. Never got a, a, a sniff. Six Pro Bowls. Played on a you know great run teams. Kansas City played with those Patriot teams. What's his deal? Does he ever get in the room? No, I doubt it. I think he's one of those that's just going to be passed over. And in a lot of ways, if you look at the grades from Pro Scout Inc., you're going to find that uh, he outgraded in his best years Will Shields. I always thought Brian Waters was better when I watched him, but Shields was a guy who made a lot of Pro Bowls, but very few All-Pros, meaning he was one of the top three guards in his league a lot, but not one of the top two guards in the whole league very often. Also, Dave Zott was better than both of them, if, you, if we're honest about it, but he's never going to make it to the room, nor is a, you know, Ed White never made it to the room. A lot of these guys just get overlooked, and I think Brian Waters is in that group. Where were you at Walt Sweeney? Oh, I think he's right up there with the best. I think he was probably better than the guy who made the All-Decade team, which was uh, Brad uh, Ed Buddy. Uh, he was bigger, stronger. Merlin Olson said he was the toughest he ever faced. That's a good endorsement. Uh, he was bigger than the guys of his era. At six, I think he was 6'5", probably 265, um, and stronger. Um, of course, we all probably know why that was the case of what was going on in the San Diego locker room. But that happened in a lot of locker rooms back then. But I think Walt Sweeney, I think it was nine Pro Bowls, is another guard that gets overlooked. You guys just did a profile on a Gail Gillingham, never got a sniff. Guards just get overlooked. They always have. It was really hard to get a lot of these guys in to begin with. Look what happened to Jerry Kramer. How long did it, it take? Yeah. Why there's a bias against them, I don't know. Reuben Brown, nine Pro Bowls, can't get a sniff. Yeah, there's another one. It makes me wonder hey, about guys like Jari Evans in, in six, seven years. Uh, right. Look, we've got Hutchinson. Was, it was a dominant player, a tackle playing guard. Fanica, how many Pro Bowls did he go to? Six All-Pros or seven? They can't get in for a second ballot. The, you know, there is a bias against interior linemen. Yeah, Fanica was nine Pro Bowls and eight All-Pros. I mean, he he can't – I mean, he, I think he gets in next year, but um, – it's been a wait, and I, I, I know he doesn't understand it, but he's also patient, unlike some of these other guys. Hey, um, John, I want to go back to the class of 2020 here. How many of these guys who are in their first year of eligibility, guys first up, like Palomalo, Wayne, Willis, those guys, how many of those do you think are going to be finalists next year? Mm, five. 
finalists in the final 15? Probably probably one. Probably just Palomalu. I don't know if Willis can break through just because I, he had a short career. His career ended the same way Jack Lambert's did with a toe injury. I don't know if he'll, he'll be top 25. I don't know if he's got the juice to jump into the final 15 his first year. That's just my prediction. Um, I think Palomalu will make the final 15. And if I were a betting person at this juncture based on his the eye, not necessarily the eye test, but you noticed him when he played. Every game he got he he got noticed. I would say he has a good chance of being a first ballot. Um, I, I, it's not that I would do it, but it's just a prediction. And also based that it's not there's not a lot of people left over. The carryover next year is going to be the offensive right. linemen, and we've got Edron James and Isaac Bruce. But other than that, there's not a it's not a crowded field. 2021 though is a different story. Right. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, and and let me ask you since I mentioned Reggie Wayne, where are you with Reggie Wayne versus Isaac Bruce? Not even close, Isaac Bruce. Um, although Reggie Wayne, fine player. If you even if you look at his stats, he he made one All Pro team, but that was kind of a weak year. I think he had 1,250 yards and six touchdowns. Yet he makes first team All Pro. Uh, a t- that wouldn't even get you in the Pro Bowl now, or even in 1995 or 96, it wouldn't get you in the Pro Bowl. He had one year of over 1,500 yards. That was the only time he had what's called black ink led the league in bold type. I'm not even sure he's a Hall of Famer, to be honest with you. Okay, Reggie Wayne or Torrey Holt? Uh, Holt, a little bit of an advantage, but the same kind of comments. I think Holt would have a little bit more blue ink or black ink in in terms of leading the league and stuff. Uh, They both went to a lot of Pro Bowls. Both were all pro just a little bit. Both complementary receivers in terms of – that's probably not the right word. They were twin receivers on a big, big big-time passing passing game. Uh, I just think Holt would – I'm just not sure Holt's a Hall of Famer. I'll put it that way. Yeah, when he tries both of them miss. Uh, let me take you back to Patrick Willis. Patrick Willis or Tommy Nobis? Patrick Willis. Uh, Tommy Nobis got a lot of ink in the time, and I've done a lot of study on him because he seems like a guy, like when he was great when I was a kid, you would read his name in the books. But right. if you look at the Falcons' defense, it was always allowing 4.4, 4.5 yards a rush year after year. And they had Claude Humphrey, they had Greg Brzezina, John Zook. You're going, what's wrong? What's going on with that defense? He also was all pro just one time. It seems like he was a perennial All-Pro. He wasn't. I think he's probably going to have to be resigned to the Hall of the Very Good with guys like Leroy Jordan. Maybe it's not fair, but they were playing in an era with Nitsky and Butkus and Lanier. And, and it just depends, I guess, up to you guys, you voters, how deep do you want to go at a position in any particular era. If you want to go seven, eight deep, then yeah, put Nobus and put in put in Jordan. If you want to keep it elite and go top two or three, then you really can't do that. But that's not Who's my call. That's just an outside in. analysis. Who's the best middle linebacker not in? Middle linebacker or yeah. inside backer in. or both? Middle. Middle backer. Uh, the best middle backer not in. Nobus and, and, and Jordan, probably. Okay. NFL historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal. 
Thanks for the time. Always appreciate it. Anytime, gentlemen. You got it. Thanks, John. Up next, it's our two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're almost out of time, so let's do this one in honor of the late Red Cashin. That's the two-minute That's right, it's the two-minute drill, and I've got this one, so let's get started. Will Nick Foles be traded before or after the draft? Before. You might like Foles more, certainly not less, after the draft. Yeah, I agree with that. So, Gooseman, what is Nick Foles' true market value? Well, the Broncos acquired a Super Bowl MVP quarterback for a fourth-rounder. Foles is four years younger than Flacco, so the Eagles will ask for a one and probably settle for a two. Raiders GM Reggie McKenzie just signed on as a senior personnel executive with the Miami Dolphins after seven of his eight Oakland Raider teams failed to make the playoffs. What are the Dolphins thinking? The man drafted Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper. The Dolphins could use one of each. (laughs) Exactly. Friend of the show, Trent Richardson scored the game-winning TD his third in two games for the Birmingham Iron. How soon before he irons out a deal with an NFL team? At 28, he's already at the wall for running backs. He'll get into an NFL training camp, but it won't be a big money deal. The NFL now has a quote-unquote partial ban on combine attendance for college players with off-the-field problems. What does a partial ban really mean? Partial ban means 25 teams have already taken you off the draft board, but there are seven who still want to kick the tires. (laughs) Hey, Goose, is Ron on a partial ban tonight? Full band. Full band. Yeah. New Cardinals coach Cliff Kingsbury. He says Josh Rosen has, quote, the keys to the castle, unquote. Does he have the keys out of the NFC West cellar, too? Not unless the Cardinals can build an offensive line this offseason that can protect Rosen. The sacks need to come down out of the 50s, or else the only keys he'll need are those to the hospital. The Gooseman, who wins the battle for control of the Packers' offense? New coach Matt LaFleur or old quarterback Aaron Rodgers? The guy with the most commas in his paycheck. That would be Rodgers. Yeah, it would be. Joe Gibbs said his biggest win, quote, in anything, unquote, was his cars finishing 1-2-3 at the Daytona 500. So where does that put his three Lombardi trophies? Numbers 4, 5, and 6. That's the end of the game. <laughs> if you'd like to hear this or any of our four, five, or six podcasts, just go to our website, www.talkoffamenetwork.com, or themaven.io slash talkoffame, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at 